Father, thank you for uh, the clarity of Scripture. Thank you for all that you have revealed to us of yourself. We know that this is certainly not the entirety of who you are, but this gives us a very good picture, very clear picture of your glory, your majesty, and the fulfilling of all of your promises, particularly those having to do with, with redemption. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that we don't realize uh, how much we enjoy, we need, um, we profit from each day. I pray that you would open our eyes to see his work, and we pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, this is lecture number 15 in our series, God's Glorious Salvation. And this morning we are talking about the I in tulip, namely uh, irresistible grace. Again, I know I've said this many times, but just to put it on the table once again, uh, this, this whole discussion of the tulip, thank you for the artwork, um, is, uh, is, is not the sum total of, of Calvinism. Uh, it, it, and, and Calvinism is shorthand, as uh, Spurgeon is wont to have said. Uh, Calvinism is shorthand for biblical Christianity. Um, uh, this, this is not the sum total. Uh, the, the, the whole TULIP acronym was given, uh, was, was created in response to some protests, some... Um, some some questions, some some objections having to do with with um, uh, the reformed teaching, um, but but uh, but but this this is not uh, to, to save it that uh, the tulip as the five points of Calvinism is a bit of a misnomer. Um, um, anyway, we, we, this 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 happen, ha- has to do with with. Um, uh, the salvation that God has given to us, and uh, these these points have to do with with um, um, challenges primarily to God's sovereignty with regard to salvation. Um, we could go back all the way to the fourth century when this um, discussion came to a head with uh, with with um, uh, Saint Augustine. Archbishop, or Archbishop, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, and uh, Pelagius, a, a British monk. Uh, Augustine was one to say, no, salvation is purely 100% God. And Pelagius was one who said, no, salvation is purely um, uh, a, a response by mankind. Um, and we, we, we put the label on Pelagianism, auto-soterism, that we spent a good bit of time talking about, auto-salvation. That is, um, it's because you're smart enough, you're wise enough, you figured it out that you are saved. You, you, uh, you did the research, you came to a conclusion, you made a choice, that's it. Um, and the scriptures... Um, get in the way of that understanding and tell us, no, um, 
It is the sovereign choice of God by which we are saved. It is not something that man does. Jonah put it very succinctly in the second chapter of his book, salvation is of the Lord, period. So, um, as, you, uh, as you look on your notes, uh, these are some of the core values of, um, of the, the remonstrants, as they are, were called, the, the people from the church, uh, from, uh, uh, from the Dutch Reformed Church in Holland, who protested against the reformers, and that's why they are called the remonstrants, meaning protests. And um, uh, they, they argued, um, or, or rather, they uh, assumed a restriction on God's sovereignty. Um, and here, here, here's, what, here's what they value most. God does not violate man's freedom to choose. I would agree with that statement. But here's where we, uh, where we have a rub. Both evangelical Arminians, those following the, uh, the, the teachings of uh, Jacob Arminius, um, those, those uh, evangelical Armenians will affirm the doctrine of total depravity or the doctrine of moral inability, the doctrine of radical corruption. Um, as such, man does not have the capacity to choose God. We, we are bereft of the, the spiritual stuff that we need even to understand what's at stake, we cannot. We don't have the ability to choose. We are not struggling at the surface of the water, floundering around, hoping that someone is going to throw us a, a, a ring buoy. No, we're at the bottom of the ocean. We're dead. So scripture says. That's, that's where we all go back to, that we are, we are spiritually dead morally unable, incapable of responding. So, so, so we're, we're in a quandary. If we are indeed dead at the bottom of the ocean, have no hope, no ability to do anything about it, certainly no, no life, we are utterly, completely, 100% dependent upon someone else to rescue us. Oh, but wait! God doesn't violate man's free choices. Well, the, the remonstrants, here's the core issue. The remonstrants asserted, and this was their, their fourth of, of, of five uh, protest points, and it happens to turn out that this is the fourth point in the tulip, but uh, th this only flows logically and necessarily, and we'll see that in just a moment. Here's point number four. God's grace may be resisted. Did you get notes? Oh, uh, uh, could you, uh, Sarah, could you run up and make three or four more? Or, okay, thank you. Um, God's grace may be resisted, 
And at the Council of Dort, um, that was the response to Jacob Arminius, you remember. They said, no, Scripture teaches that God's grace is irresistible. It cannot be resisted. Here's what um, Augustus Toplady, you remember him from um, Rock of Ages, he's an Anglican pastor, as well as a hymn writer. He said this about the doctrine of resistible grace. So he's speaking against his own convictions, against what Scripture says. He's looking at this other doctrine, and he says this, a doctrine which represents omnipotence as wishing and trying and striving to no purpose is this doctrine of resistible grace. According to this tenet, God, in endeavoring, for it seems that it is only an endeavor, to convert sinners, may, by sinners, be foiled, defeated, and disappointed. So, so Top Lady says, if we take this doctrine of resistible grace as the remonstrants present, they are objecting to reform teaching, and they said, if, if, if we take this, what we are saying is that man has the capability to foil, to defeat, to disappoint God in his attempt, his desire, his longing to see men and women converted. Again, as we, as we see, saw with Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, um, as we saw in the Roman Catholic Church, as we've looked historically at this whole issue, um, we see it even with the Arminians. This, this idea has always been with us. Um, God, even though the scriptures say point blank that he is the sovereign, he has to be, that we have to restrict that in some way. He cannot be fully in charge because he would never violate our will. And we make choices every day. Therefore, even in the matter of salvation, we have to have some control. We're in charge, right? Well, can man thwart the plans and the purposes of Almighty God? Maybe not, maybe not. Okay, let's, let's define and describe what we're talking about when we talk about this doctrine of irresistible grace. Uh, the label itself can be misleading. And I might suggest that we, talk, we, we, we relabel this. We ain't, got no, we ain't got no flower no more. Effectual grace. I'll give you a, a clue of where we're headed. The doctrine of resistible grace or effectual grace does not mean that God's grace cannot be resisted. It's resisted every day. Not only in the life of an unbeliever who, who uh, is, is exhorted through, uh, in, in all manners of, in, in all ways, they are, they are encouraged to, 
to believe, to trust, to repent, um, and they resist that. Not only do we see it in unbelievers, we see it in believers too. That's our experience every day. The Holy Spirit nudges us, leads us, guides us to do this, not do that. And what do we do? We go our own way. We resist God's grace every day to our shame. But that's, uh, that, that's the reality of what, what we're talking about. So, so um, we are not talking about when we talk about God's irresistible grace, we're not saying that it can't be resisted. Neither are we saying that God coerces or he forces a response against man's will as if we were our robots, automatons. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that God irresistibly draws those whom he has chosen unto himself by means of the internal call of the Holy Spirit. That was a big mouthful. Let me say that again. All right. This is what we mean by talking about irresistible grace. God irresistibly draws those whom he has chosen unto himself by means of the internal call of the Holy Spirit. Effectual grace is a better label. Um, Here's a a, a key passage in the debate, and I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6, please. John chapter 6, and uh, verse 44. Now, during the second hour in our study through John's gospel, uh, we have spent a good bit of time in uh, John 6. Uh, these are, these are there's some crucial, crucial verses here. Um, verse 44 is what I want to focus on for just a moment again. John 6, 44, no one, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We've looked at this many times. John 6, 44, no one, universal negative, no one can come. Universal inability. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the, 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 the key word in what I just read is the word draw. Arminian will look at that word, and they say, they say, to draw means to woo, to entice, to put a little carrot in front and seek to pull one in. And here's why they, they, they don't define it according to the lexicon, according to the dictionary. They, they define it according to, uh, on, on the basis of their assumption that God is not going to force, coerce, 
make somebody do something against their will. So he's going to woo them, draw them, seek to entice them to come unto salvation. Um, but the, the lexicon, if, if, you, if we were to look at the, what, what, what the actual Greek word means, used literally, it means to drag. Hmm. Let me show you where. Keep your finger here, and John, we'll be back. Uh, Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, verse 19. Paul and Silas have um, uh, crossed the, um, uh, the Aegean, and they are now in Greece. And uh, Acts 16, 19 reads this way. Um, when their master saw that the, their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Same, same word. Um, I don't think we should understand that to mean the magistrates wooed Paul or, or sought to entice Silas to come with them. No, by force, they dragged him. They dragged both of them. All right. Um, now, it, when, when this word is used metaphorically, not literally, it means, quote, to draw by an inward power to lead, to impel. So it, it, takes, it takes some of the dragging by force out of it when it's used metaphorically, but still there is this forceful exertion of effort to cause to happen. Let me give you a couple of examples here where how it's used this way. Um, in Acts uh, 16, verse 14. This is when uh, um, Paul and Silas first, uh, first cross over there in, in, uh, in Philippi. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord moved so powerfully in Lydia's heart, her mind, her will, that she positively responded to the working of the Spirit. In this sense, she was drawn. I'll give you another example. Acts chapter 13. Verse 48. <clears throat> when the Gentiles heard this, that is the uh, preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many as had been appointed unto eternal life believed. That is an example of the doctrine of irresistible grace displayed. 
as many as have been appointed to eternal life, these believed. They were irresistibly, every one of them, was irresistibly drawn to the Savior. Now, these these people are not blind lemmings running into the sea off of some cliff. Let me me read to you how the Synod of Dort, responding to Jacob Arminius and and, uh, his his, uh, his students, his followers, this is is their um, description, their descriptive description. Descriptive description? Well, that's kind of a unnecessary redundancy, isn't it? Here it is. Just as the fall did not abolish the nature of the human race, but distorted it and led to spiritual death, so also this divine grace of regeneration does not act in people as if they were blocks and stones, nor does it abolish the will and its properties, or coerce a reluctant will by force, but spiritually revives, heals, reforms, and in a manner that was at once pleasing and powerful, bends it back. The will is liberated, not violated. Does that help you see what we're, we're, we're not talking about God doing something against our will, as if a person, an unsaved person, wants to be saved and God says no. Or if somebody who is unsaved and is, uh, un, who, who is unsaved and now is saved against their will. That is, that is not what we're talking about. God is, is not acting against our will. We're not being coerced. Listen to the description from the Westminster Confession. All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. This is what happens in the heart of an unbeliever. He he is spiritually dead at the bottom of the ocean. He can't do anything about it. And if, 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 if that's the only set of circumstances that he has to work with, he will die in his sins. And he wants it that way. He hates the things of God, rejects the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, 
He has not the capacity to understand the things of God. He doesn't want to be saved. He hates God. That's the definition of an unbeliever. When the Holy Spirit starts to work in there, in that person's life, the act of justification, which is a declaration in heaven, causes in that person a, 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 a spiritual surgery. The heart of stone is taken out, the heart that doesn't beat anymore. He's given a, a, a heart of, of flesh that does respond like it's supposed to. And for the first time, he sees his sin. He is alive. He is awakened. He is given sight. He is given ears to hear the, the, the inward call of the Holy Spirit. That person sees how great his sin is, how glorious God is, and his, his, his provision in Christ. <coughs> and that provision is so impelling, so compelling, that he is drawn to the Savior. Every, every single person who has that kind of spiritual surgery done in his heart so that he is now able to see his sin and God's provision in Christ, every single one is drawn unto the Savior. There is not one person who has that spiritual surgery done on them that is not saved. Everyone. Because these are uh, God's elect, elect ones. I put this in your note, in your notes. I, I, I find this helpful in clarifying uh, with, with regard to this doctrine of total depravity. We're talking about the nature of man. With regard to God's sovereign election, his choice, we are talking about the work of the Father. When we talk about God's limited atonement, our particular redemption, we're talking about the work of the Son making atonement actual. Not just possible, he is actually redeeming particular individuals, namely the elect, whom God has sovereignly chose, chosen. And, and, and now with, with this fourth doctrine, we're, we're talking about the work of the Spirit who effectually chooses um, to um, um, call, bring men unto, um, unto, unto uh, to salvation. Now, now before we start, tar- before we talk about how this happens, let's establish that it happens. For that, I think we'll, we'll, need, we'll need to be in the Book of Romans, chapter um, eight. Romans chapter 8, we'll start reading at verse 28. We know, we know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And now beginning verse 29, he elaborates on what this purpose is to which we are called, that is, those who love God. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In what we call the golden chain of salvation here, Paul looks back into eternity past and, and, and makes, makes us aware of the fact that God has um, foreknown, we've looked at this verse in, uh, before, foreknown not choices, but individuals. And there are many commentators who said it's, it's, it would be better contextually to translate this verb, those whom he foreloved. Um, these he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, and that, predestined, uh, that predestination requires uh, salvation because of our spiritual deadness. Um, These whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Um, What we are describing here in this chain of salvation, these these five elements, uh, describe the monergistic work of God. We've talked about that word before. Uh, Monergism, uh, like monorail, uh, there's one rail on a monorail. Like there's there's one working, one who is working in our salvation. Now you'll notice that there is no mention of sanctification here, with purpose and intention. Uh, not only is he not giving us all of the pieces and all of the particulars about uh, our salvation, else he would talk about things like adoption that we'll talk about this morning in the second hour. Uh, he doesn't mention sanctification, because that's not a monergistic work. That is a synergistic work. That is a, a work where I am cooperating with the Holy Spirit to, to do what, what the Lord said, this is, this, is, this is my plan and my will for uh, your particular life. So, um, so, so we, can, we, we affirm that... that um, um, that, that God is, is working in a particular way unto our salvation, uh, let, let's talk about how this irresistible grace works for just a minute. There's, there's two kinds of calling that we have to um, specify. There is an external call of the gospel, and there is the internal call of the Holy Spirit. When the Lord commands us to preach the gospel to all to all, uh, we are to go to everybody. Anybody who's got a pair of ears or a pair of eyes, if they happen to be blind uh, or deaf, we, we, we seek to communicate God's message in any and every possible way. And we do that to everybody. We don't know who, who, who has been chosen from eternity to past. We don't know whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's not ours to know. Ours is the responsibility to preach the gospel, period. So we do. Every, every, every person we can, we can think of. Every person we come in contact with. That's the external call of the gospel. It is a call of 
Um, judgment is coming. There is grace found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a sinner. You are destined for God's wrath. But hang on, there is hope. It is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he, and he alone, is the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the God the Father except through Christ. Believe on him. Trust him. That's the external call. To every believer, I mean, to, to every person, we, uh, we, we, we make that call. Now, the inner call of the Holy Spirit, this is, this is what effectually saves. The internal call of the Spirit is that spiritual surgery that's done that nobody can do except God. Only God is able to remove that, that unresponsive heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that actually beats. person is, who, who, is, who is called has that inner, inner calling of the, spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, the, that spiritual surgery by the Spirit. That, that person isn't coerced, but they are drawn in the sense that their eyes are open, their ears are open, they, they, they now have uh, the spiritual capacity to understand the depth of their sin, the extent of God's grace. Now they can get it, as we might say. Um, they are made willing to believe by God's effectual grace, the external, uh, the internal calling of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, 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 we do, I need to make a, a distinction here. We, we, we talk sometimes about God's common grace, which is extended to everyone. Um, uh, but we're, we're, we're not talking about God's common grace here. We're talking about something very specific that only the Holy Spirit can do. And in that spiritual surgery that only he can do, he, he gives us the ability to, to, um, to, to choose to believe. And there we have um, a, a way of act, acting. Now, I, uh, I, I'm sorry, whoever drew my beautiful um, tulip. I'm going to erase all this. And you see on your your handout and um, your notes this morning up um, a series of boxes that's not that's not filled out that I that I I, I think may, may may prove helpful to to us in terms of understanding um, uh, what what the what does the scripture teach so so on the left hand side of your column I put Arminianism hyper Calvinism and Calvinism. And then on the top, I am passive and I am active. Um, the, the Arminian says that with, with regard um, to my new birth, this spiritual surgery I'm talking about, my new birth and my conversion, I am active. Let me put this in a different color. 
birth and conversion in the eyes of the Armenian is an active choice. I choose my new birth. I choose my conversion. Now when I'm talking about conversion, I'm talking about repentance and faith. In the eyes of, of, of an Arminian, we've, 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 we've talked about uh, how, how this works in their, in their thinking. God looks down the corridors of time and he sees a person who responds to him by faith. That's the person, according to the Arminian position, that's the person that God chooses. So salvation isn't dependent upon God. God makes it possible, remember, by, by means of his prevenient grace, a non-biblical doctrine, but that's the only way that an evangelical Armenian can get somebody off of the, the dead sea, uh, off of the uh, floor of the ocean, spiritually dead. They have to have something, and so they have invented this doctrine to give, to to elevate people so that they can come up to the surface of the water, and they can choose to believe and to repent. Now, the hyper Calvinist, in contrast, is is just the opposite. That position says, um, "My new birth." <clears throat> and conversion these are these are both things that are passive i don't choose to do this and again the, the hyper calvinist position is not is not what the what the scriptures teach um, it it may not be very popular arminianism is very very popular it it, it, it is the, the 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 popular way of understanding Salvation in our day. Sad to say. Hyper-Calvinism is not very popular, but that idea is, is out there that says, well, I, I, I don't do anything. So, so I, I don't need to do, I don't need to do evangelism. Uh, I, I don't need to be involved in missions because God's going to save who's going to save. Well, that, that's, a, that's a distorted view of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. In the Calvinist viewpoint, I am passive with regard to my new birth. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. However, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Once I have been given this heart of... of um, flesh, now that I am able to respond to the things of God, I am active with regard to my conversion. Does that mean that I convert myself? No, 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 no. Let's, let's clarify that. Scriptures say that repentance and faith are gifts by God. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Ephesians 2, 8. Repentance is a gift. Faith is a gift. With my new birth, the Holy Spirit gifts me with these two things. Repentance and faith. 
In so doing, I have a responsibility. And so I am active to believe, to repent. I am not saying that I am synergistically working. No, this is, this is something that, that my, my conversion comes post-justification. Now, all of these things happen in, in, in less, less than a nano, nano, nanosecond. Uh, but we can um, logically put them on a timeline to say, this has to happen first, then this happens, then this happens. When a person is born again, born from above, justified, they are... Um, made alive by the Spirit, gifted with new abilities, new capacities, new understandings that the Lord expects us to respond with. So this whole conversion process um, is, is, is after justification, so technically it fits in that, in that framework of our sanctification but when we are talking about the newness of this, this life in Christ, we, we can put, this is, this is just kind of right on that, on that edge of, of uh, though it's on the other side of, of uh, our justification. Um, it doesn't fit fully in the area of sanctification other than to say that I am continually as a, sanctified believer in that process. I am continually responding to the Lord in faith and repentance. Right? All right. Um, I think I'm done with my monologue.